Good morning. My name is Corey Inouye, and my family and I serve on the Connections team here at Calvary Bible Church Thornton. And uh, we've been attending for about two and a half years. And so I'd like to invite you to join me in today's reading from James 119 through 121. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Zach Thompson, and I am on staff here at uh, Calvary. Uh, so excited for how our Easter weekend is shaping up. As uh, Vanessa and Dakota were talking about, we will have our Good Friday service on Friday, uh, April 15th. And then the next morning will be our Easter egg hunt. That's Saturday morning, the 16th. And then we get to uh, celebrate the resurrected Lord Sunday, Easter Sunday on April 17th. It will be such a great time. I encourage you, if you are available that Saturday, please help us. Uh, when I last saw, when I was signing up to be part of that Easter egg hunt, I saw Vanessa's name and my name. And as, as amazing as Vanessa is, she could probably take care of this entire event herself. With me there, I'll just be dragging her down. So she'll need some help, some assistance in order to execute this and, and reach our neighbors. So I encourage you to be part of that on the Saturday of Easter. So I have been surfing exactly once in my life. Uh, it's, it's a little bit strange coming from California and Southern California where it is a little bit more prevalent out there, but uh, it wasn't until college that I really had a good friend who loved surfing. He was the type of guy who'd get up at five in the morning, drive an hour, park and then carry his surfboard for about a half mile just to get to the perfect spot. That's what he would do. And we were camping at a beach one summer and he said, you know what, I'm going to teach you how to surf. And so he showed me some stuff on, on land and then we went out there, we paddled out and he gave me a couple more tips and he just kind of let me at it at that point. I, I found out that I was, I was pretty good at paddling, I was decent at judging waves, I was awful absolutely awful at getting up on the board, which is fairly important when it comes to surfing. And I think I know why it was such a struggle for me. See, I started playing football at a, at a really young age. I was, I was about nine years old, and I played for nine or so, maybe 10 years following that. And because I was out of shape and, and uh, disobedient and slow to understand what my coaches were telling me to do, I, I had a, the same punishment that would come to me throughout all of those years of playing football. It was a punishment that we called up-downs. So what this was is uh, you would be jogging in place, then your coach would blow a whistle, you had to jump down to your stomach, and immediately pop back up in a football position. Feet facing forward, shoulder width apart, knees slightly bent, jogging in place again. Failure to do this fast enough meant that you had to keep going. And needless to say, I never did it fast enough. But there is a method to this. There's, there's a reason for doing this as well. It is instilling in us, it is helping us understand that when we fall down, when we get knocked down in a play, we are to hop back up as soon as possible 
in a ready position, ready to contribute in the play when it happens. And the idea was, as we do this over and over and over again, this would become second nature. We'd be on autopilot, able to do this as we built this habit, this procedure. Well, when I was out there surfing, and I was down on my stomach, and I needed to pop back up, every time that I did so, I did it feet facing forward, shoulder width apart, knees slightly bent. Every time that I did this, I kept having that happen. After all of those years of up-downs, it instilled this practice, this behavior in me. And we have this in us. As we have habits, as we repeat the same process, as we go through procedures time and time again, it creates a, uh, an autopilot function to us. It creates a habit that is really difficult to break. And this is so hard for us when we get to passages like ours today, where we have a command from James that goes against our nature, our habits, our procedures. Now, before we can get to the command itself, we need to remind ourselves of who James is talking to. Last week, we uh, left off on James chapter 1, verse 18. So let's uh, turn back to there. You can either grab your scripture journal if you have that with you. If, if you didn't get a chance to grab one, we, we have it back on the, the hello wall that's out there. You can grab one over there. We're marking up uh, our scripture journals. We're highlighting things, circling things, drawing connections to help better understand. If you don't have one, don't want one, no problem. We'll have it here. You could turn to James chapter 1 in your Bible as well. So we were in James uh, chapter eight, or chapter 1 verse 18 last week, and we're trying to see who is James talking to? What is it that uh, is describing these people? And first it says that these are people who have been brought forth by the word of truth. And this is really important. I don't want red. Uh, this is really important because it launches us into this new section that James is walking through where this idea of God's word keeps popping up time and time again. We'll see it in our passage today where there is the implanted word. So these are people brought forth by God's word, that they have been shaped by it, and they are called a kind of first fruits of his creatures. New Testament talks about this word first fruits uh, a few times uh, to refer to Christians, God's people, those who have been saved. God loves and cares for all people, but those who are following after him have this special relationship brought into his family. So these are God's people, those who would call themselves Christians, those following Jesus that James is talking to. Now, what does he say in our passage? He says to know this. So know this, this is a command. So I'll put a little exclamation point right there. We talked about in the book of James that there are more commands per word than any other New Testament book. And we have this right here. So Christian, you must know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. What are they supposed to know? Let every person so a couple things with this phrase. So with let, let can be pretty passive, right? Hey, let me have one of those cookies. There's a request there. You could say no to it. Please don't say no to it, but you can. But let can also be forceful. Let my people go. That's not a request. That's a command. And that's how this is being used as well. So we'll put another exclamation point. Let, you must... Every person, so no one is off the hook, be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to anger. Each Christian must do these things. Now this runs so contrary to how we normally operate. This runs so different to what our habits, our procedures are. We must be quick to listen, to hear. I don't want to have to listen to what this person has to say. We have to be slow to speak. No, 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 they, they need to hear from me. I, I have to be slow to anger. First off, how dare you? Second off, I can't help it if this guy in front of me is slowing all of us down. I can't help it if my phone isn't working like it's supposed to. I can't help it if my child's not working like it's supposed to. This runs so contrary to how we operate, to how we behave. This is not our habit. And yet James is saying this is what each Christian must do. Instead of fighting to be heard, we have to fight to hear others. Instead of uh, fearing that we'll, we'll be overlooked or miss out on contributing and not being able to show what we know of someone else getting credit for saying it first, we actually have to delay. Instead of holding things accountable to our arbitrary metric of justice, we need to remind ourselves that we're not judge, jury, and executioner. So let's take each of these in turn. Every, each Christian must be quick to hear. Now, some people try to soften the blow of this phrase. They say, uh, each Christian must be quick to hear from the Word of God. And I think that is true. The, the section that we're in it continues to go back to God's Word. We, we drew that little connection. It's in verse 18. It's in verse 21. It'll be in our passage next week as well. And I do think our passage says that Christians ought to turn to God's Word, ought to listen to it. But I think it says that later on in this passage. Because there seems to be a bit of a progression in, in here. As people who have been called God's first fruits, as people who have been brought into his family, as people who have been put in the special status by him, how do these people treat others? Because God has done this for them, how are they to treat others? And I think it is saying that we must be quick to hear, not just from beloved brothers and sisters, but we must treat all people in this way. Because think of what James has been saying to this point. This is the God who uh, has, has uh, given us wisdom in all sorts of trials. This is the God who gives every good and perfect gift. This is the God who brings us into the special status of him, of being called first fruits of his creature. These are, uh, this is the God who has brought this word of truth that so shapes his people. And because of this grace and love that's been shown we too are to demonstrate this grace and love towards others. We are to act in the same exceeding gentleness that has been shown to us. So we are to be quick to hear from others, even if I don't really want to, even if this story is going on and on, even if I've heard this story about 10,000 times, even if I think I know the answer to their problems right away and I could save both of us the trouble, even if I find this person annoying, every Christian must be quick to hear. And this is something that I've had to work on. 
that list that I went through of reasons to not hear people, that didn't come from extensive research. That came from me sitting down wondering, why have I not listened to people? This is, this is something that I have need to work on. I have it in me to just blurt out the first thing that comes to my mind in an attempt to try to be funny or out of a sign of my pride. You see, I know what's best. I don't need a dialogue here. I don't need anyone's input. I can just solve this. It's a sign of my condescension. Ooh, in all your hours and days and years of thinking of this topic, you couldn't come up with something better than the first thing off the top of my head. It shows my impatience, my desire to get to something that I think is worth my time and attention. I've had to work on this. So something that I've been trying to build in, I've been trying to build in a pause in conversations with people. After something is said, I try to leave a little bit of time to, to, to pause, to be quick to hear, to ensure that I'm listening to them, not just jumping into the next thing that I want to say. I, I, I'm intentionally inserting time in there to try to be quick to hear from them. Now, this isn't something I've perfectly doing. This isn't something that I'm saying, hey, look at me that's great at this. Again, I just laid out all of my struggles with being quick to hear. And what am I doing in those times? What am I doing when I'm jumping into my response? What am I doing when I'm not listening to this person? Well, I'm demonstrating that I miss everything that James has built to this point, that he shows us a God who is quick to love us a God who is quick to save, a God who's quick to invite us into his family, a God that's quick to give us every good and perfect gift. And as we see who this God is, as we see how he has treated us, that impacts how we treat other people whether they are the beloved brothers and sisters that James is writing to or someone who disregards everything that God has for them because God has been so exceedingly gentle and loving and gracious towards us, we treat others in the same way. And every Christian must be quick to hear. The second part of that is, is closely tied to it. Every Christian must be slow to speak. These are tied together because you can't be quick to hear and slow to, uh, you can't hear and speak at the same time. If we're doing one, we're not doing the other one. And James is far from the only person that talks about the importance of being slow to speak. I mean, even the book of Proverbs, you read through it, you find verse after verse after verse that talks about the wisdom that comes from being slow to speak. One, one example of this uh, would be a Proverbs 17, 28. It says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So why do we do this? Why are we slow to speak in this way? Well, we talked about one of the reasons why, because God has treated us in, in such a gentle and kind and loving manner. We treat others in the same way, but we have another reason, as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, that being slow to speak puts us down the path to wisdom. That's what James has been talking about a few weeks ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, let us ask God. James is showing us the life that is defined as wise, and a start of that is being slow to speak. Because in the times that I am not doing this, 
Often what happens is I lead the conversation down a way that it never needed to go. I cause more conflict than was necessary by me just jumping into what I had to say. I cause more strife. I I lead things to blow up in both of our faces in the times that I am not slow to speak. And so the wisdom is to do so. So how do we do this? How do we grow in being slow to speak? And that might not be a hypothetical question for some of us. Really, how do I do this? Well, I think it goes back to that pause that I've been trying to have. In these conversations, to have a time where where I am leaving an intentional section where I am not speaking. First, to ensure, did I hear them properly? But second, to ensure, am I responding properly? properly. It's not just a, a pause that's, that I'm leaving there for, for awkwardness sake, but I'm trying to do something in that time. For, first, it's a quick prayer of inviting God into this conversation. But second, it's, it's a little look in myself, taking inventory of what's going on inside of me in this conversation. So I'm not rashly speaking out of that, but actually trying to do what is best for this conversation. So it's this quick prayer of God, am I understanding them properly? Do I know more of their story, why they might be responding in this way, why they might be feeling this way? Am I taking offense to what was said? Am I overly taking offense to what was said? Why am I feeling this way right now? What is my goal in this conversation? Is it to be right Is it to prove how smart I am? Is it to be respected and and, uh, cared for? Or is it this relationship and maintaining that? And then the big one always, and what I am about to say is that honoring to Jesus. Now, I know that's a lot. I'm not giving a checklist. Every single time we're having a conversation, we must pause, go through this list, and then finally respond. That's not what it is. But I bring this up because my instinct is to just jump into what I have to say, which often leads to these less wise outcomes. So it's this intentional pause to pray, to look at what's going on, to assess, is this really helpful for what my goal is in this conversation? And I know that sounds awkward. Why is there such a big pause in every conversation? And yet every time that I've asked for, hey, can I get just one second to think mid-conversation, I never get told no. I also never have to ask for it a second time as that's just offered. And yet despite any awkwardness that that might have, I've only seen the benefits of taking that quick second to think, to pause, to reflect, to pray has led to a better outcome in this relationship in this conversation of helping them feel cared for, helping them feel honored. And a quick note on this, uh, my fellow introverts in this room may have been looking at this like, slow to speak, I got that one down. I just never speak. But that's not what the passage is saying either. Slow to speak implies that speaking will be done at some point. And this aligns with what we see throughout the rest of Scripture, that we are called, we are commanded to speak of God's truth, of His justice, of His character, of His goodness. And yet, so often when we do speak, we do not do so as people who are shaped by Jesus. And so the wise thing, the loving thing, 
the one that's shaped by who, what God has done for us, is that every Christian must be slow to speak. Final one, every Christian must be slow to anger. And we've had a bit of a progression between these. I don't know if you saw it. How do we be slow to speak? Will we be quick to hear? How do we be slow to anger? Will we be slow to speak? Because oftentimes when I am at my angriest, that is when I'm the least likely to be slow to speak. That's when I'm retaliating. That's when I'm blurting out. That's where I'm feeling wounded and I'm feeling like wounding others. That's where I care the least about honoring and caring for this person. And this is so vitally important because it's something that we see in Christians as well. Every Monday, the preachers across the three campuses and our online service, we get together and we talk about the passage. And one of the pastors, I can't remember who it was, talked about a men's retreat that Calvary put on before COVID. And they invited all the men who are going to send in their questions. What are some things that you would, are seeking for answers at this time? And the number one results, the number one question that they got from men attending Calvary is how do I deal with my anger? It's something that it, we see. It's the habits of those within the church as much as it is outside of the church. It is our nature. It's how we respond. It's, it's, it's what's been hardwired in us to, do, to act in these ways. It's like years of up-down causing us to, to continue to respond just on autopilot. And so much of anger is, is rooted in something else. I, I wanted things to go a certain way, and they did not. I expected things from people, and, and it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. I was exposed. I was revealed. I, I was seen in a way that I didn't want to be seen. Now, I don't know what the root of your anger is, but it is something that we do need to identify. Unless if we see what is it that makes us angry, we can't possibly hope to deal with it. But I do think that James gives us a bit of a progression that might lessen our anger. As we are quick to hear, as we are slow to speak, as we see more and more what God has been done for us, as he has shaped us, as he has made us in this way, and that causes us to care for others as we have been cared for, to see them in a new light, to create these new habits that God is doing into us, not reverting back to our autopilot before, but seeing that God has brought us into new light, a life. I think that lessens our anger a bit. And this is vitally important that we do deal with our anger because of what we continue to see in this passage. Look at verse 20 starts with this word, for. So every Christian must be quick to hear, must be slow to speak, must be slow to anger. Well, why? And that's what this word for is addressing. Why do we need to do these things? Well, for or because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Of God. In this passage, we have two things kind of pitted against each other. So we have anger of man, uh, which is human anger, which is uh, fallen and tainted by sin. 
it does not produce the righteousness of God. So in other words, our anger often goes against the character and purpose of God. Our anger often goes against the character and purpose of God. And as we talked about, so much of of how we respond, so much of how we treat each other is influenced by our anger. So often we can resonate with with lyrics from the band Asia and just say, ah, it was the heat of the moment. Or in a way that we might actually get the reference to, uh, Doug Moo says, uh, uncontrolled anger leads to uncontrolled speech. It's in these times that we are angry, that we are going against the character and purposes of God. And this reminds us a little bit of what we saw last week when we were talking about temptation, how each person is tempted when he is enticed by his desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. So it starts with a desire. When we give into it, when we give that more place than what it is, when we fall for that trap of going after that rather than going after God, it leads to sin and that leads to death. Well, what is anger if not frustrated desire? I wanted this thing, but that couldn't happen. I wanted things to turn out in this way, but it turned out in a different way. I wanted to stay in the shadows here, but that was brought forth to the light. It is a desire that we had that becomes frustrated. And when that becomes so encompassing, when we are enticed by it, well, it leads to sin and it leads to death. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, a couple quick caveats in here. I I know that there are some traumas, some uh, things that have gone in our life that have have just resulted in extreme anger. Someone has so abhorrently treated us. We look into this world and we see things that are disgusting. There, There are some angers that we hold on to for, we could say, good reason but I hope that this passage shows us to not be content with that. That as the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, that while we might be in seasons of hanging on to anger, let us never be content with staying there because we see the impact and the power that anger has to pull us away from what God has for us and what he's called us to be. The other caveat there is uh, oftentimes people point out to, well, Jesus was angry, and there's such a thing as, as righteous anger, and there certainly is, often, uh, there, not often, but there are some times when our anger might align with God's ways. But more often than not, when I've seen people bringing those up to justify their anger, they don't fit into those same categories. Because most of the time our anger comes when we're trying to be God over our own lives and that's not working out for us when we are feeling a pull to do something outside of what God has called us to do and it blowing up in our face, when we were keeping something hidden from the world and it gets exposed, when we were pursuing something that we ought not to have been pursuing and we finally got what it was and it didn't satisfy, our anger pulls us in a direction away from what God has for us in a path that leads to sin that leads to death, as the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what do we do about it? That's verse 21. 
It says, therefore. So because of this negative reason, we saw positive reasons for living in this way because God has treated us so, uh, this way, so we treat others uh, in a similar way because it's the wise way of living because a failure to do so leads us down the path to sin and death. So what do we do? That is what this word therefore is addressing. So therefore, put away. Another word for this would be to remove, to set aside, to take off. Think of this as uh, removing dirty, filthy, disgusting, smelly clothes, taking them off and putting them away, leaving them behind. So back in those football days, uh, I remember one practice that we had because it was raining. Now, I don't mean it was just a little bit of rain. That, that happened fairly often. This wasn't any scattered showers. This was the most significant rain I'd ever experienced in my entire life. And this happened at the end of the football season. This is important because when you take a bunch of big dudes wearing cleats day in, day out on the same particular patch of grass, pretty soon there will no longer be a patch of grass as we, like locusts, destroy everything living in our path. So what happens when you add lots and lots of rain onto what is essentially a dirt field? Yes, a lot of mud. That is exactly right. I heard some people say mud. That's accurate, but you were more accurate. A lot of mud. That is exactly right. Mud was everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. It was cake to my face mask, which also meant it was cake to my face. Uh, my white practice jersey was n- no longer white, and I don't think it ever went back to white after that. Uh, I had mud in my contacts, but I couldn't do anything about it because I had mud coating my hand. Mud was absolutely everywhere. It was perhaps the only time in my high school career that I was looking forward to taking a shower afterwards. And so after this practice, I was, I was going to go home. It was going to be warm. I was really excited about it. But it was early on into high school, which meant that my mom was still my driver. And she would not let me into her van with any trace of mud on me, with any bit of fabric that had mud on it. All of that had to be left out of her van before I could come into it. I had no idea that she was this interested in appearances. She had curtains covering the windows of her vans. Why did she care what people thought? But every bit of it, not only that I needed to have all of the mud off of me, But those clothes that I was wearing were not allowed to come in her van. Just in case the mud got through the double bag that I had on it, it had to get left back at school. No trace of mud could come with me. And that's the idea here. We are called to put away, to take off, to completely remove what? Well, we are to remove all filthiness, So think of this like soiled, uh, rotten, smelly, filthy clothes. We're to remove all that is filthy and all rampant wickedness. 
So what it's saying is like that day in that, uh, when I was trying to go in my mom's van, I needed to have every trace of mud removed. I needed to have every bit of clothing that had mud on it left back behind me. I couldn't take it with me. And the same idea, we need to remove everything that runs contrary to the way that God has for us. It needs to be taken off. It needs to be left aside. We can't double bag it. We can't triple bag it. It has to stay behind. And instead, we're told with meekness, uh, to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We get back to that word idea. So we are saved by the gospel, and we are shaped by the gospel. As we continue to see God's way that he has for us, when we continue to see what God has called us to, well, we grow in recognizing that this was filthy, this is wickedness, and I want to leave it behind me. In the same way at that practice, there was a part of, of doing up-downs in the mud that was exciting. Like, we're just splashing mud all over the place. I, there is a picture in our yearbook from that year where one of my teammates is doing snow angels in the mud. Like, this is me as a high school boy. We're playing around in mud. It's fantastic. And then when I try to go home, when I want to leave that place behind, that's when I start to realize, oh, this mud might not have been so great because it's so hard to get off of. I'm not able to do what I want. In the same way, as we see God's way for us, we look back at what our habits were before, what our autopilot was, how we responded to things, and yet when we see the gloriousness of God and how much of a greater way that is, uh, is for us, there is a willingness to take all of this off of us because we see His way is better that's set before us. As we see His Word, as it shapes us, as, as we know Him more, we put away all this filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, a little bit that's interesting here, it talks about this implanted word, to receive the implanted word. Well, how do you do that? How do you receive something that's already implanted? And, and so I, I think about it like this. Um, so God's word is like a seed. When a seed is planted, it has all that it needs to grow. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but plants were growing just fine before we added fertilizer and then a second kind of fertilizer and we watered it every 13 seconds. Uh, plant, plants were doing just fine because God has created in an ideal situation uh, where that seed has everything that it needs to grow. There's already nutrients that are in the soil that help that. Uh, rain will come and give it everything that it needs to grow. God has created it so that seed has everything that it needs to grow. In the same way, God's word has everything that it needs to shape us. But what are we commanded to do? James says to put aside all this filthiness and rampant wickedness. In the same way with a seed, while it has everything that it needs to grow, while it's implanted, we can do things that inhibit its growth, right? We could throw a shade over the top of it, which limits its exposure to the sun, we could plant other things right around it, which causes a fight for the nutrients. We could trample that area. We can go out there with bleach and just douse that land that it's at. In the same way, God's word has everything that it needs when it's implanted, when we are saved by the gospel to shape us as well. And yet when we are refusing to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, we are inhibiting the growth. We are not receiving it in the way that it ought to be received. Instead, we're told with meekness to receive the implanted word, to let it do its work, to humbly submit to what God is calling us to do. When we uh, listen and obey to God's word, it is shaping us. 
So our work is one of removing all that is uh, filthy, that goes contrary to God's way, but also to receive and obey what God has called us to do. That is the power of God's word. That's why we do a series like this where we want to take seriously the words that we find here. How does that shape us? How does that change us? How does that show us what God has done for us and and the impact that that causes on, on how we treat other people? But this isn't just a time for us to gain more factual knowledge. We don't do this series, we don't underline words or circle them so we know better what righteousness of God means, but we know better the righteousness of God. That as we deal with God's scripture, we are dealing with God, that he speaks through it, that he changes us, that he shapes us, that he has implanted his word, which is growing and changing who we are, that's changing our habits, that's changing us from how we lived before he came into our lives. Day after day, we instilled habits of sin that went against him. We created an autopilot of responses that was not quick to hear, that was not slow to speak, that was not slow to anger. In fact, it was the opposite. And yet when we go to God's word, when we see the implanted word, when we allow it its full work, we see that he is reorienting us. That as we come across commands that run so contrary to our nature, it is not something that we see as an impossibility. Instead, we recognize that God is reorienting our nature. God is giving us new life. He is changing us from our autopilot that we had before. No matter how many up-downs we did before, no matter how many times we were angry, God's new life, his new way, his better way of living that he set before us, he is working inside of us, changing us as his first fruit, as a special people, showing us the way of wisdom, showing us his way. And that's why we still have work to do. That's why we still have these commands that James gives us to do. God has given us all that we need to be saved. God has given us all that we need in his word to be changed. And yet we still constantly revert back to our old old habits. We continue to go back on that autopilot and we need to do the work of putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's why we have times of confession in our worship services. It's why we have life groups and Bible studies that we go to. It's a time where we can say, hey, I didn't do great in putting away filthiness or rampant wickedness. I I continue to go back to what I used to do before. I can continue to try to be God over my own life this past week. And, And we confess these things to each other. It's why we have communion. It's a time for us to look at where in my life am I still living out of my old nature instead of this new life that God has called me to. And we confess these sins to him. Communion goes back to uh, one of uh, Jesus uh, last night before he, he died on the cross and was uh, risen for our sins. He, he was with his disciples and, and having a meal and he took the bread at the table and he said, this is my body broken for you. We've talked about that trajectory, how we are enticed by our desire, which leads to sin, which leads to death. The punishment for sin is death. And Jesus says, I am taking that. I am taking that punishment upon my body. It is broken. That punishment is paid for you. Well, how can we trust that to be the case? That is an incredible promise. How can we believe that this promise will be upheld going into the future? Time after time of me going against God's way, time after time of me not putting away these things, well, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is a new covenant by my blood. 
The promises, the basis for this entire promise is built on Jesus' death as well. It has already been kept. And as we take communion together, we look at our lives, we look, where am I still reverting back to my old autopilot? Where am I going back to my old habits, my old procedures? Where am I not putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness? And we confess these things. We do this for a couple of reasons. One, because we believe that these have been covered by the blood and death of Jesus, and we are forgiven from them. But we do these as well because we see that we ought to take communion really seriously, that it's here that we remember what has been done for us. We, uh, we remember the grace that's been poured upon us. And so we don't want to come to communion without confessing these things. So the way that we've done this is, uh, at least for a couple more months of how we'll continue to be doing this, is, is I, I will set up what this time is, as I hopefully have just done for us, and, and give us a, a time to pause, to think, where am I still reverting back to my old habits? Where am I not putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness? Where am I falling short of that? And we confess these things to our God. And then we remember what Jesus did on the cross, his body broken, his blood poured out, and how that covers our sin. And we use it as a time to worship, to remember that grace, to remember what he's done. So I'm gonna walk off stage in in just a moment and leave us uh, to reflect on those things. Where am I still reverting back to my old habits? And what is it that Jesus has done for us? Take a few moments, ask those questions, reflect in your life, confess those sins, Praise our Jesus. And then in a few moments, I'll walk back up and we'll take the bread and the cup together.